Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 141, Brownies. All through the past several episodes covering the twists and turns of Adolf Hitler coming to power, everything that I've been describing has occurred against the backdrop of violence. In all of Hitler's maneuvers and threats to the establishment politicians who worked for years to keep him away from power, one of the trump cards that made everyone else deal with him very, very carefully was the presence of a street army at his beck and call. Part of the Nazi formula of success wasn't just vague appeals to the baser nature of Germans, but to also have a group capable of controlling city streets in order to both attack political opponents and give the German people a demonstration of power. This wasn't unique to the Nazi movement. That's basically what the fascists in Italy did with their squads and black shirts. And they weren't alone in Germany either. Far-right paramilitary groups were established early on in Weimar Germany, being the heirs of the Free Corps and all. And throughout the 20s, it was the Stahlhelm group that was the most numerous and visible of the far-right street fighters. In addition, there were groups sponsored by the KPD and SPD that formed left-wing counterparts. What I'm getting at is that, pre-1933, interwar Germany played host to a wide array of disaffected people willing to organize themselves for some future struggle for the nation's future. And for the Nazis, they had the Sturmabteilung, or the SA. The brown shirts, as you are already familiar. I've certainly talked about the SA a bit already, how they were a constant and growing presence, but this week, they're going to be the main focus. Them, and to a lesser extent their offshoot, the SS which will be the more important of the two long-term, but in the actual rise of the Nazis, the SA commanded pride of place. The reason why I want to give the SA this much attention is twofold. One, they were integral to Hitler's rise to power, and two, they were an oddly independent group given that the National Socialist ideology demanded the subsumption of independent thought to their leader. They were indispensable to the NSDAP early on, but as power was secured they became a liability that had to be dealt with. And today I'll be covering their activities and history up to the point where Hitler felt compelled to purge some of his own followers, which was a big deal in Nazi Germany. Unlike Stalin, Hitler really didn't purge rivals in the National Socialist movement very often. Case in point, look how long it took him to deal with the Strasser brothers. And even then, they mostly purged themselves. State violence against the long list of racial and ideological enemies was easy enough for Hitler, but when it came to allies that he no longer wanted around, he usually just forced them into retirement with a accompanying bribe to smooth over the hard feelings. But he did eventually purge the SA, so explaining why it came to that will be an objective of this episode. The origins of the SA are somewhat murky, with the Nazis themselves pointing to the group becoming formalized in the fall of 1920. In reality, this group existed well before even that early time. It's just that, much like the Nazi party itself in those days, the SA was a very ephemeral group. The party was microscopic in size, and so too was its combat organization. Even back in those days, though, the Nazi party were provocateurs, who publicly made scenes denouncing the Republic and the left in general. This invited a response from the center and left-wing fighting groups to retaliate by coming to Nazi speaking events, usually in those beer halls that enjoyed the crowds drawn to political theater. The opponents of the Nazis were not subtle people themselves. They'd 
go to a bar where Hitler or someone else was speaking, start heckling them, and then proceeded to wreck up the place when the Nazis got irritated. Uh, bar brawls happened frequently enough that those who took part on the Nazi side became a de facto bodyguard group, which increasingly became a formal part of the National Socialist movement towards the end of 1920, initially under the oversight of Emil Maurice, Hitler's uh, personal driver and bodyguard, whom I mentioned a couple weeks ago had a falling out with Hitler over his niece Gelly's attentions. At first, the group was just another defense force. Hecklers would show up, the SA would break them up. However, as the numbers of stormtroopers grew, stormtroopers being how the SA foot soldiers like to be known as, a reference to the elite and determined trench fighters of World War I, the group became more offensive in character. They were primarily armed with rubber batons for their fights, and going into 1921, they became a more common sight outside of Nazi events. They would proactively attack political enemies as a gang, disrupt religious services, and generally just make a public nuisance of themselves by marching around and shouting the crudest of the Nazi slogans. They were even bold enough to attack representatives of the Entente in Munich, who worked there in order to oversee Germany's compliance with the peace treaty. Despite the very public trouble that they caused, the police on the ground largely looked the other way when dealing with the SA. The first step towards making the organization more than a street gang was in July 1921, when Hitler brought in Captain Hermann Erhardt, who was a prominent Free Corps leader. Commanding the imaginatively named Erhardt Brigade, the captain had been active in Free Corps operations in Bavaria and East Germany before getting into trouble by backing the Kapusch. Having to lay low, he traveled to Bavaria and merged his group with the SA in order to deflect attention all the while still being involved in the underground world of assassinations and violence that the Free Corps members trafficked in. Erhardt arranged to have one of his own people, Johann Klinsch, to take command of the SA in July 1921. Hitler's intent was to militarize and prepare the SA to be an actual fighting force, while Erhardt and Klinsch intended to use Hitler's little movement as a recruiting tool for a larger reactionary army. Hitler certainly got what he wanted. The influx of trained ex-soldiers from the Erhardt crowd and the connections of its leaders certainly improved the potential fighting capacity of the SA. The group was reorganized on military lines with chains of command and ranks. And thanks to Erhardt's contacts, real deal weapons were provided to the group. The SA was given access not just to rifles, but to machine guns and artillery as well. Training exercises in the countryside gave the SA members experience in their use. It seemed as though Hitler got what he wanted, something approximating a personal army. Under Clinch, though, the SA went through changes that would create tensions between the organization and Hitler that would plague it all the way to the 1934 purge. Clinch successfully detached the SA from the Nazi party structure, which, to be fair, in 1921 was not that huge of an accomplishment. The NSDAP at the time didn't really amount to much. Heck, the SA itself was only 250 guys. Violent guys, sure, but it wasn't a big group. I can't even call them brown shirts yet because they didn't have standardized uniforms until 1924, and even then, not everybody could afford to buy the outfit. The SA would be spiritually connected to Hitler and the National Socialist Movement, but would make themselves available as a supporting partner, not an internal army to be ordered around. Despite the small sample size, the character of the SA's membership was pretty much set from an early stage. 
The vast majority of members would be young, or at least younger men, typically either coming from uh, destitute economic circumstances or from a traditionally well-off family that was in danger of losing its place in the world. The rank and file were typically composed of the rougher elements of society that were decried in the propaganda of their enemies, while leadership roles were assigned wherever possible to men that had had combat experience in the past war, or at least had fought in the Free Corps. They didn't necessarily have coherent politics, in keeping with the broader National Socialist movement, and contented themselves with raging against moneyed interests that had sold out their precious fatherland and collaborated with the Entente to leave its people in poverty. Jews and communists were their natural enemies, as they were perceived as being behind every conspiracy that had brought Germany to such a low place. The SA men, though, were guys who wanted to go out and do something about it. Not run for office or try to convince people of their viewpoint through speeches or debates, of course. These guys wanted to get their hands dirty. I talked way back in episode 4 about fascism being obsessed with expressions of energy, power, and adventurism. They wanted to set themselves apart from normal society by crusading and fighting for their purpose, and were not content with operating within the norms of the Republic. They wanted action and opportunities to display their violent abilities, and they would travel to get them. In addition to training exercises and attacking people on the Munich streets, Clinch organized expeditions in the area surrounding the Bavarian capital. And because the Nazis really didn't have money for cars, this took the form of bicycle trips. Going as far as 30 miles outside Munich, Clench would lead a couple dozen SA men every Sunday to go to a small, outlying town. Once there, they'd go to the town square, set up a Nazi banner, and then march around singing anti-Semitic songs. They'd usually cap things off by locating a Jewish-owned business and attacking it before heading back to Munich. The potential for legal trouble, and the fact that it was a cycling group, led Hitler to change the SA's name to describe them as being a gymnastics and sporting organization. That way, he could tell authorities it was just some guys riding bikes, and not a terror organization at all. It worked, and authorities continued to look the other way, brushing off the outings as traditional countryside camping trips that young German men engaged in. The public attacks also served to heighten the SA's profile, and the group started to expand all through Bavaria and even into Austria as well. Although, as you'll recall from episode 130, that the Heimwehr were the more popular far-right group operating there at the time. Bigger numbers meant the public brawls became larger, and in Munich, the fights with the communists saw hundreds of fighters on both sides join in their periodic melees. The expansion, though, led to internal conflicts by early 1923. Hitler was acutely aware of the SA's enhanced abilities and didn't want his hold on them to slip fully out of his hands. Erhard himself was pushing in that direction, wanting the SA for himself. So in March 1923, Hitler replaced Clench with Hermann Goering. Two months later, Erhardt would disassociate himself and his followers from the SA entirely, but Goering would be able to enjoy the command of a larger group of 900 fighters in Munich alone, with more in the general region. And while I'm talking about expanded numbers, keep in mind the SA was always going to have trouble mobilizing their entire roster throughout its history. SA men might have wanted fights and revolutionary adventure, but they were busy some days, and being a brown shirt didn't pay terribly well and oftentimes not at all. It was also in March 1923 that Hitler devised yet another group, which he called the Strostrup. It wasn't huge, initially only eight guys. Their purpose was to pick up the old task of the SA and act as a bodyguard unit. 
and that included being bodyguards against those members of a larger movement that might not have had Hitler's best interests at heart. This was not the formal start, but it was the basis of what would eventually become the SS. I'll be getting to them in a minute, but their part of the story is considerably smaller during these years. Uh, given what went down later, it is appropriate, though, that their establishment was with a fearful eye towards the SA. Anyway, Goering's assumption of command came during a critical moment. 1923 saw the hyperinflation crisis break out all across the nation, and the number of angry, disaffected people skyrocketed, and it seemed like the Republic would collapse. As I described last season, the atmosphere in Munich was thick with far-right conspiracies with the aim to seize power. The problem was that nobody felt quite sure enough to stick their necks out, although Hitler marshaled his forces to the very edge of attempting a push in May 1923 before getting cold feet and backing down. This resulted in a bad loss of face for the Nazi and SA leadership, and the mid-level officers warned that the rank-and-file would abandon the movement if something like that were to be repeated. The failure opened the way for frank and open criticism against leadership that alarmed Hitler and the others enough that they felt pressured to launch a push to try and show that they were capable of, well, something. Which, of course, resulted in the Beer Hall push of November 1923, and I won't tread on that same ground again, as, and as you uh, well know, it didn't go well for the Nazis. With Hitler and most of the leadership arrested or on the run, including Goering, who was going to spend a lengthy spell in Austria recovering from a gunshot wound, the movement was left leaderless. And then a couple weeks after the push, the SA and the NSDAP as a whole were banned throughout the nation. As I said last season, that should have been the end. But it wasn't. Recuperating in Innsbruck, Goering turned over leadership of the SA to Ernst Rom, the man who would become closely identified with the group, although he only sporadically led it. Rom I've already introduced during my Nazi miniseries last season, so you already know of him. He's the war hero of the far right that acted as a liaison first between the army and the network of free corps units, and then between the army and the more underground associations of far right paramilitary groups. He was called the Machine Gun King as he was entrusted with access to secret depots of World War I-era weaponry that should have been destroyed after Versailles, but wasn't. Fun fact, when the Germans began to rearm after Hitler secured power, as much as a third of the armaments used to equip the army in its initial phase of expansion came from Rom's old depots. He was a useful guy to know. And while he certainly supported Hitler and held an attachment to National Socialism, he wasn't formally part of the movement. He worked with the entire far right during the early to mid-1920s. His appointment by Goering to lead the now underground SA was due mostly to Rom being the most competent ally available who could still travel freely in Germany, as he was acquitted for his part in the push. Rom reorganized the SA and the rest of the far-right groups dislocated after November 1923 into the Frontbahn, which would expand under Rom's leadership to a full 30,000 members across all of Germany. Keep in mind, this wasn't just a rebranded SA. The Nazis were just part of this movement but the idea was to push the others further into the right and into National Socialism. Rom's independence, though, concerned Hitler, who grew to fear what Rom was planning. Hitler had taken the failure of the push as a sign that a violent uprising was not possible, that he had to win the political game to take power. Rom, though, still wanted to do an uprising, and figured if they had only had a bigger, more reliable army across more of the country, they could have won. Rom was a soldier, not a politician, and his solutions played to his own experiences. 
Romno didn't have much support from the far-right leaders, as men like Hitler and Ludendorff no longer wanted to launch an uprising. He didn't last long after the ban on the NSDAP and SA was lifted in February 1925. The front ban was switched back to the SA, and in May, Rom resigned his positions and dropped out of the movement for a number of years, eventually heading to South America to act as a military advisor in 1928. The man who would lead the SA through the wilderness years of the Nazi party was a man named Franz Pfeiffer von Solomon. He was a veteran of the Free Corps, a longtime member of the General Volkisch Movement, and joined the NSDAP in March 1925 after the ban was lifted. His organizational capabilities marked him out, and he almost was immediately appointed a Gauleiter, or party boss, of Westphalia. He was also useful because he came from the northern part of Germany. This was still the time when the refounded NSDAP saw a split between those newcomers from the north joining after the push and the older hands from down south who were personally loyal to Hitler. Pfeiffer von Solomon was someone the enlarged SA leaders trusted not just to roll over to a Fuhrer they were still kind of unfamiliar with. In August 1926, he was appointed commander of the now fully up-and-running National SA. Pfeiffer von Solomon built the SA into a more centralized force, and despite this new incarnation not having the same access to weapons, thanks to the authorities having a more watchful eye and also with the absence of Rome, he organized it along even more militarized lines than before. There would be no pretense of being a social group. A brown shirt was expected to be a military man in mentality. Hitler ordered that the group's mission moving forward would be to project power and conjure an image of a blindly obedient fighting force. Pfeiffer von Solomon obliged that wish. The SA rank and file would not be political in the same way that the Nazi party would be. They would serve the National Socialist cause, yes, but they were not the ones who preached the message. They existed to march, intimidate, and fight. They weren't supposed to give interviews. They didn't try and talk people into joining the Nazis. They were an unfeeling, unyielding brown mass. The problem would become for Hitler that the SA's leaders, like Pfeiffer von Solomon himself, saw the group in terms of closer to Rome's previous vision. They would be a vehicle to ultra-right revolution in the country, overturning the liberal economic order and replacing the army as the people's fighting force. The youthful membership of the SA advocated for a quick dissolution of the Republic and its replacement with a charismatic style of authoritarianism based on close relationships between the people and their leaders, which was all too provocative for Hitler's tastes as he was fully willing to make use of establishment figures, at least on his terms, if they were, you know, willing to play ball. In addition, the SA's leadership lent itself to a cell-based structure, which meant that members would have close relationships that formed close bonds amongst each other, more so than distant party bosses, which was great for their staying power, but also meant they had loyalties beyond Hitler. But for half a decade, that didn't really matter too much. As I've hammered home before, the back half of the 20s were the wilderness years of the Nazi movement. The SA certainly grew, Generous estimates put them at growing to just shy of 60,000 members before 1930, but probably around half that in reality. Hitler was adrift with no friends outside the ultra-right, and it seemed like a dead end overall. Even what growth the SA did enjoy could be attributed to the shuddering of smaller ultra-right groups over the years and their members being consolidated into the brown shirt ranks. And I should take a moment here before I move on to the period where the Nazis broke out electorally, to bring back up the other group I'm touching on this episode. 
I mentioned that Hitler had created a bodyguard unit going back to before the Beer Hall Bush. Well, that was an informal gathering at best, but once the SA was refounded in the years afterwards, so was the bodyguard unit. In April 1925, Hitler ordered the formation of a headquarters bodyguard unit that was called the Schutzstaffel, the SS. At first, under the command of Julius Schreck, they were again only eight dudes who met in the basement of a beer hall. Schreck, though, was determined to expand the ranks, but according to different standards in the SA, of which he was on paper subordinated to. The SS would draw upon those Nazis who had demonstrable fighting and leadership skills. It was designed to be far smaller in number from the SA, but elite in comparison. This extended to the background of inductees as well. Whereas the SA took in pretty much everybody willing to obey orders, the SS selected mostly from the middle class, meaning that when push came to shove, the SA had a lot more sympathy for the German establishment, which was going to manifest once the Nazis actually gained power and when it came time to nip the SA in the bud. What I'm saying is that the SS were much keener to cooperate and politic in order to secure influence than the SA. This divide was manifested in the conduct of the SS with the rest of the movement. They were openly arrogant and referred to themselves as the aristocracy of National Socialism. Their discipline also went farther, with strict codes of conduct enforced by quick punishments, including fines and even temporary expulsions. The SA certainly had rules about obedience, appearance, and staying sober while on duty, but the SS regulations went much further. This included keeping silent on political matters, something the SA was supposed to do, but usually failed. Iron discipline was the mantra of the SS's fourth and far away most famous leader, Heinrich Himmler. I haven't mentioned him too much, but that's because we haven't reached the point where the SS was truly in the ascendant yet. Compared to the rest of the Nazi hierarchy, he was a youngin and was still in army training at the age of 18 when the war ended in Germany. It was a blow as his older brother had not only seen combat, but had won an Iron Cross, a high distinction. So, no glory for Heinrich, something that would stick with him later on. Post-war, he drifted to the ultra-right and placed himself at the disposal of Ernst Rahm within the militant underground of Germany in the early 20s. Although, once more, combat and the chance of glory eluded him, even as the Free Corps marched across Germany. He was present for the Beer Hall Push as a member of the troops brought in by Rom, and while he didn't suffer legal repercussions, he was fired from his agricultural management gig, which gave rise to him being dismissed as a failed chicken farmer in the historical record. However, he did have recognized organizational skills, and his destitute material conditions drove him further to the right. While participating in yet another far-right offshoot created by General Ludendorff after 1923, Himmler met Gregor Strasser, who recognized his abilities and brought him along when Strasser joined the NSDAP. Himmler worked in the party offices in Munich and achieved personal contact with Hitler, whom he immediately developed a man-crush on. Yes, I know you can say that about most all the Nazi leadership that stuck around, but for Himmler, it was for real. Like talking to his photograph while at work real. Hitler looked approvingly at the young man desperate for a leader to follow and brought him further into the fold. This culminated on January 6, 1929, with his promotion to Reichsfuhrer SS. Hitler had handed him the instrument that would elevate him to become one of the most powerful men in Nazi Germany, and at the time, he was only 29 years old. But that was for later. At the turn of the decade, the SS numbered only a few hundred men and was dismissed as a vanity project by SA leader Pfeiffer von Solomon. 
Himmler was also dismissed because he had picked up more than a few eccentricities. Everybody in the Nazi party was anti-Semitic, but Himmler spoke of it in terms of mysticism. Blood purity became an obsession of his, and he started adding ethnic requirements to SS membership, in addition to outwardly positive physical characteristics. If you've heard of the ESS breeding programs, the idea started with Himmler wanting to breed a superior Nazi elite like he was engaging in animal husbandry. You'd think members would feel dehumanized, but those accepted as elite were energized by the idea. Which, I mean, they're being told they're super people, so yeah, it was kind of an ego thing. All this talk of elites also attracted men who had been members of the Free Corps, as they were more comfortable in an environment of stricter standards when compared to the SA. Moreover, Himmler spoke of racial enemies of the Germans, specifically Jews and Slavs. Himmler stuck to the Nazi orthodoxy in that Jews were out to get Germany and the rest of the world, in addition to considering Slavs the primary competition to the Germans in the East. He saw a battle as necessary to strengthening the German people, and conquest to the East would provide them farming estates to avoid succeeding generations being forced into suffocating and politically suspect cities, which touched on his own frustrations at being denied martial glory, as well as his own lack of success in the agricultural sector. Oddly enough, his message actually connected, and SS membership trebled by the end of 1929 to 1,000 men. That was still small potatoes, of course. Then the Great Depression happened. Then the September 1930 election happened. And then everything turned around for the SA and SS, just as it did the Nazi movement as a whole. You know the story already from the past several weeks. The NSDAP got the second biggest vote share in the country, and then the next two elections became the biggest one. Suddenly, they were winners, viable leaders. Uh, Pfeiffer von Solomon, though, didn't share in that success. Just before the 1930 elections on August 29th, he was unceremoniously removed from command of the SA. He had been butting heads with Hitler for some time already, and his removal was immediately followed by a mutiny from the East Germany SA boss, Walter Stennis. Stennis was a typical SA boss at the time, borderline contemptuous of the spineless party functionaries who wanted to take power via legal means. The SA rank and file had for some time been voicing dissatisfaction with the resources allotted to them by the NSDAP proper, as men needed to be fed, clothed, and given shelter as the economy disintegrated. Then there was the fact that the SA did the dirty work of fighting and parading in the streets, while the party officials made all the decisions. Hitler's doctrine of them being faceless, unthinking foot soldiers was wearing thin among the SA members. This was especially the feeling among the Berlin units, and Stennis was willing to do something about it. He demanded more resources and the assignment of three Reichstag seats to SA leaders as insurance that they'd have a voice. Hitler ignored him. In retaliation on August 30th, he ordered the brown shirts assigned to guard one of Goebbels' rallies to instead deploy to another part of the city, leaving the propaganda chief without his honor guard. Another group stormed Goebbels' offices, overrunning the SA troops there and tearing the place apart. Hitler rushed to the capital and soothed his followers' nerves by announcing he'd be personally replacing Pfeiffer von Solomon as supreme leader of the SA and that he'd attend to their interests directly. Stennis was able to assure his men that more financial resources would then be forthcoming. The larger tension, though, remained, as the SA desired a violent seizure of power compared to Hitler's slow and steady approach and Hitler, despite becoming supreme commander, wasn't about to run the SA himself. He reached out to Ernst Röhm, then, then operating in Bolivia, and asked him to come back after the September 1930 electoral breakthrough. 
Sensing that power was within the grasp of the Nazis, Rom returned in short order, and on November 30th, he assumed effective control of the SA as its chief of staff under Hitler. Now, in the old days, Rom would have commanded immediate respect, but he'd been gone for years by that point, and new leaders had risen up. Then there was the delicate matter of Rom's homosexuality. As I briefly discussed last season, he wasn't open about it, but he wasn't locked in the closet either, and words started getting out. Subordinates who wanted more leeway in their own decision-making would attack their new boss over his sexual orientation relentlessly, making the open secret much more open and much less secret. Hitler would protect his old comrade and shut down such talk. After all, Rom was competent and seen as dependable. The thing was, the old tension that had caused Hitler and Rom to split back in the mid-20s was still there. Rom still didn't care for the political approach to gaining power. Hitler felt he needed him, though. Now, Hitler did really start to look at the SS, though, as a counterweight to the SA around this time, and in late 1930 detached the SS from its parent organization. Himmler and his black uniform band of stormtroopers would answer directly to Hitler from then on out. Meanwhile, Stennis stubbornly refused to shut up. He took his anti-electoral strategy to the party's newspapers, which forced Hitler to respond in kind. The two would snipe at each other in the Volkischer Biobachter paper, with Stennis basically saying, Hey guys, let's launch a coup. And Hitler frantically responding, No seriously, we're not launching a coup. On March 7, 1931, Hitler addressed a group of Bavarian SA men and assured them that while he wasn't too cowardly to launch them into combat, he was too considerate of Fuhrer to throw their lives away. On March 28th, Chancellor Brüning issued a decree specifying that if political organizations were not tightly controlled, then they could expect to be banned. He was looking real hard at the SA when issuing that decree, and the Nazi bosses knew it. Stennis saw it as an opportunity to force Hitler's hand. If he made a scene, then Brüning would ban the SA, or the NSDAP as a whole, and force a turn to violent action. He led his Berlin brown shirts again to Goebbels' office, but found that his support past his immediate followers was actually practically nothing. Hitler and Rome had cut him off by telling the other SA officers that they could expect increased and fixed budgets, which sold them on staying loyal. Stennis backed down, and on March 31st, was ejected from the party. Local SA units were put under the direct control of their regional party bosses. While the fact that 500 brown shirts followed Stennis on the way out stung a little as it left Berlin temporarily undermanned, developments on the manpower front were turning in the SA's favor. At the start of 1931, the SA counted almost 90,000 men in its ranks. As the Depression carried on, though, their numbers exploded to 220,000 in November, and by August 1932, sat at 445,000. The worse the Depression got, the larger the Nazi street army became. While manpower became less of an issue, they actually made the older problems worse. Growth like that meant that there were more men to support, and the influx of brown-shirt recruits were from people who were hitting dead ends in life, men who wanted to strike back against the establishment that had laid them low. That is, in the cities at least. In the farms and small towns, the SA's growth came far more from more upstanding sectors of society, as the youth of the middle class joined the group to share in the success of the Nazis and get in on their mission of nation national unity. Plus, they came from families feeling the pinch of the Depression, and joining the militant SA was seen as a way to try and fight for their social standing. Rom, while getting kudos for his loyalty during the Stennis affair, steadily organized the expanding SA into the people's militia of his dreams. 
Now, internal conflict-wise, the years 1931-32 were quiet ones. The SA steadily built up its capabilities, expanding its motor pool of trucks to be able to ship in brown shirts from one area of the country to another. Despite their growth, they were still thin on the ground in some areas, especially the biggest cities where the working class swung Marxist. Motorized transport enabled concentrations at pre-planned times, a far cry from the bike trips of the early 20s. During the numerous elections over those years, the SA would organize motor trips crisscrossing Germany, where they'd roll into small towns, uh, distribute propaganda and put up posters, sing some patriotic songs, and let a Nazi official give a little speech before packing up and heading to the next stop. Violence, despite the government's objections and occasionally the police's objections, always lurked at the brown shirts detected a Jewish or leftist presence. While NSDAP leaders insisted that the SA were only violent and provoked, they continued the long tradition of attacking Jewish businesses and homes, as well as the offices of the KPD and even the more accepted SPD. When Hitler held a big parade at the back end of 1931 in Brunswick, the presence of 60,000 brown shirts in a town of 150,000 just invited trouble, and the working-class neighborhoods were heavily raided. By and large, the police mostly looked the other way during such incidents. Both cops and the judiciary system mostly saw the brown shirts as patriots fighting communism. Even the younger army officers saw them as fine auxiliaries for a future war, despite their superiors looking at the SA with suspicion. This wasn't a universal sentiment. There were still arrests and convictions when the street violence really got out of hand. But even then, there were recourses. The Nazis set up their own insurance system for when brown shirts got injured or needed legal representation, and funded it by mandatory pay-ins by SA members. The real danger to the SA was a feeling of anxiety and frustration as Hitler failed to secure power between 1930 and 1933, despite several electoral successes. These were years of tension as the rank-and-file got frustrated at Hitler refusing to cut a deal in exchange for leadership. The Depression was only getting worse, and the paltry relief offered by the Nazi party was also only getting worse as time dragged on. October 1932 marked when the SA's membership actually started to decrease slightly, and the constant propaganda campaigns wore on the men. Then, Hitler became chancellor, and everything changed. Not overnight, as you remember from last week, but definitely a month into his government when the Reichstag fire happened. After that incident, and after the Enabling Act was passed, the SA was let off the leash. So were the SS, but the SA was the far larger organization. Adopting a policy that would be replicated in other states, Goering ordered that the SA and SS be deputized as auxiliary police forces. 50,000 were recruited for this purpose in the Prussian state alone. You remember last week, this was the time when the Nazi foot soldiers descended on the party enemies and smashed up everybody who wasn't a Nazi. It was a terrifying summer, case in point, Rom's order on July 31, 1933, where he authorized that in the event an SA man was killed by political opponents, that 12 enemies should be executed in retaliation. And while the auxiliary police arrangement didn't last forever, with most all of those units being wound down by the end of 1933, they served their purpose, and the SA were the undisputed masters of the German streets, which was terrifying because Rom now saw the group as well and truly above the law. The leftist street armies were gone, the SS was still small. They had won out against the detested establishment. Rom demanded that disciplining his brown shirts should only be handled by internal SA courts instead of civil ones, and the normal police were dismissed as relics of a dead institution. 
Businesses were strong-armed into hiring SA men, and officers lived large off of favors befitting connected men in the emerging Nazi Germany. And it's with that new feeling of imperiousness that the SA started to run into trouble. Because of their new influence in sheer numbers, the SA grew to be about 4 million strong by April 1934, people started to really feel threatened by the monster they had nurtured. People like Hitler and the army officers who the SA leaders wanted to replace. And importantly, average Germans, who looked at the violence on the streets and associated more with the brown shirts specifically than with the larger National Socialist movement. And with all the other pieces removed from the board, eyes started turning back on the SA. Next week, we'll continue on with the consolidation of Nazi Germany and finish the long drama between the brown shirts and their Fuhrer with the Knight of the Long Knives. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.